If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi everyone and welcome to this uh, discussion. Uh, We're going to discuss essentially the themes uh, of Alexander Zavin's new book, which I have to be honest is one of the best books I've read in in recent years, uh, which I don't say too often. And uh, it's a very, very intellectually stimulating uh, work on liberalism and at the same time a unauthorized uh, biography of The Economist magazine, which has existed since 1843. So before, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the book, I think it's appropriate because we were all wondering Uh, how The Economist itself was going to review the book. I mean, there were two ways of doing it, of course. One is to give it a very serious review and engage with the ideas and arguments in it. The other was to just do a very rough, harsh review, attacking uh, Zevin for being a, a communist or Marxist or whatever and not to be taken seriously. Well, either of those would have been acceptable on some levels. But in fact, what we got was a totally pathetic review, uh, which said that there had been another uh, biography of The Economist, an account by uh, Ruth Dudley Edwards, which was much better. Yeah, it was much better for them. Because it was hardly critical. The criticisms were matronly criticisms, uh, saying sometimes they tend to show off a bit too much. Sometimes they're too clever. But in terms of the actual content of the book, it was a total puff job. And, uh, you know, The Economist could have published it itself, really. Uh, And the reviewer then goes on to say that... Zevin's book should effectively be seen as a supplement to this great master work, which was kind of him. Um, and then he says something which I noted when I was forced myself to reread the book today. He says, uh, Um, Mr. Zavin does not actually say the post-war economist has been a market fundamentalist lickspittal of Western intelligence agencies, but that is the politely expressed drift. Now, this reminded me of an event in New York several years ago where the Nation magazine, the repository of progressive American liberalism, progressive sometimes, um, organized one of their annual Christmas parties. And to show how broad-minded they were, they'd invited Henry Kissinger. This was a sort of an interesting in itself, but they hadn't told their own staff since it had been done at the top level. 
And Kissinger, to everyone's surprise, actually showed up. And then he looked round and saw the looks people were giving him. And he said to the senior exec who'd invited him, I think this might have been a mistake, you know, because most of the people in this room regard me as a war criminal. <laughs> to which his hostess replied, you a war criminal, Henry it." And that's my reply to Gottlieb. You a market fundamentalist, lick spittle of Western intelligence agencies, perish the thought. How could you possibly be that? Anyway, the, <clears throat> the book is about the ideology of uh, uh, liberalism. It discusses the idea conceptually, what it actually uh, meant in uh, practice. And this, of course, is linked in very, very clearly to the life of The Economist from 1843 onwards. And as one reads it, the how The Economist developed, actually, in, to, to a certain extent, you can see the decay setting in. Uh, the, the debates which used to take place within its pages. I mean, there's a fascinating chunk where John Maynard Keynes, who's annoyed with the policy of The Economist, starts sending letters to the editor. And uh, The Economist publishes each letter and then has a full-page reply to it, till finally they, they capitulate to Keynes. That sort of stuff you don't see in, uh, in The Economist uh, uh, anymore. That degree of, you know, conscious debate and discussion within liberalism. But before we, we go on, I'm going to hand over to Alex, whose book it is, to give us an account of uh, 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 the book and your central thesis. Great. Thank you all very much for being here. Uh, I'd like to thank the LRB Bookshop for fitting us in. I know they were very busy with their 40th anniversary celebration, so I, I appreciate that. Um, the book. So the book began its life as an article for a French newspaper called Le Monde Diplomatique. Uh, it was just going to be a short article uh, exploring sort of the recent history of The Economist and how it came to embody the sort of pensée unique uh, of the Thatcher and Reagan years. Um, but as I looked into that history, uh, which has never really been told in, in, in depth, let alone from a critical perspective, as, as Tarek pointed out, uh, I realized that it would make sense to actually tell the story of The Economist, this magazine, as the story of liberalism itself. Not as the only form of liberalism or the purest form of liberalism, but as the dominant form of liberalism around which other forms have gravitated at various times in history. And um, that, that became the kind of organizing theme of the book. And more, more, more profoundly within that, I, I realized that The Economist starts in 1843. This is a crucial moment in the history of liberalism. Um, and it became a way of rejecting other ways of talking about liberalism, which have tended to be very, uh, you know, loosey-goosey kind of this, that, and the other, or dominated by political theorists, maybe, who want to say that liberalism starts with John Locke and life, liberty, and property, or maybe Adam Smith and his liberal system or, or, or liberal policy in the wealth of nations. And I began to see that really in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, liberalism takes on a political meaning. And then in Spain and in, in, in France and, 
And then as it, as it, as it moves to Britain, it's not that it starts in Britain, but as it moves to Britain, it becomes this synthesized, uniquely synthesized political and economic doctrine that we think of as classical liberalism. And when The Economist arrives in 1843, this is a crucial moment because the Anti-Corn Law League has been founded at the end of the last decade. Uh, it is triumphant in 1846 in abolishing the Corn Laws. And we also see the defeat of Chartism, what Engels called the first working class party. Uh, and so this kind of embeds liberalism as the common sense of the nation, as ba Walter Badgett, the second editor of The Economist, calls it. And, and so that, that was sort of how it got started. 1840s onward, the triumph of liberalism, the triumph of The Economist. Now, in terms of the, the three principal themes that I use to organize liberalism itself, or, or what I see as the, the main, the main um, concerns, preoccupations of The Economist throughout its history, um, for me, once the classical doctrine emerges in the 1840s in Britain uniquely, it then confronts three unanswered questions. And so the book is organized around those questions. How are liberals going to deal with the rise of demands for mass democracy, the demand for the vote on the part of the working class, which is growing in size and is becoming more organized? What are liberals going to do about that? Because the kind of normal liberal response in the 1840s is to say that the suffrage should be a censitary suffrage. There's no, no sense that there should be universal suffrage. In fact, liberals are opposed to the extension of, of the vote, adamantly in the case of, of The Economist. The second theme was, how is The Economist going to deal with the rise of finance? So as capitalism develops and matures, and in Britain this is true uh, you know, exceptionally, uh, more and more uh, of the focus of the city of London becomes on foreign investment. And uh, Walter Badgett in particular, the second editor, a banker, a theorist of central banking, is going to try and uh, shift and change and adapt liberalism to that change. So I, that was my second theme. So financialization is not something new. It's something that dates to the, the, the very early days of the, of, of the story. And then thirdly, how were liberals going to deal with the expansion of empire? And, and were liberal rights in either an economic or a political sense going to be extended to the colonized uh, and subject peoples of the empire? And so those are the three kind of organizing <laughs> themes of, of the book. Um, <clears throat> well, let's discuss democracy first. Okay. Uh, since this is now a big issue again, uh, on two levels. I mean, this... Your book, of course, argues this very well, that the notion that freedom and democracy, uh, liberal freedom and democracy are intertwined is not true and never was the case. And in fact, if you look at the history of capitalism from its origins and beginnings, uh, you see that democracy had very little to do with it. This mythology was developed largely during the Cold War uh, and after 1917 to show that capitalism um, had its own ideologies which were democratic, uh, providing freedom to the masses, uh, etc. But in fact, capitalism was a word hardly ever used during the Cold War. It's almost as if the rulers were ashamed of it. And the word they always used to substitute for capitalism was freedom. So freedom and capitalism became uh, uh, synonymous in, in uh, liberal 
liberal ideology. And as for democracy, I mean, if you think back now, it's sort of very easy to see the pattern. Uh, the reform acts hardly, I mean, they extended the numbers of people who could vote. Later on, slowly, we reached adult uh, male democracy. Women were not given the vote uh, till after the First World War. And that, too, largely as a response to radical upheavals going on in the world. Uh, an example which is worth remembering that had the British not crushed a progressive government, progressive, relatively speaking, in Afghanistan in 1919, 1920, by triggering off a tribal rebellion against it, Afghanistan would have given the vote to women long before every single Western state. You know, you can see it in the Afghan constitution. Uh, <clears throat> All people will have the right to vote, men and women. That regime uh, was, of course, crushed by the liberal British uh, <clears throat> uh, Empire. And uh, today, you can see elements of this today, that if you say, you know, as most people have agreed, one of the most dynamic capitalisms or capitalist developments in the world today is what's happened in China without even a tincture of democracy. I mean, nor do the Chinese make any secret of it. In fact, they're very hostile to the norms of bourgeois democracy in the West and say it's a complete farce anyway, which it isn't a total farce, but still. Uh, so that is one thing. And then bringing it right down to today, Alex, I mean, I must say that this, the argue, I was reading the proofs of your book as the whole Brexit debate was beginning to get more and more heated. And the number of dinner parties I attended in London, where it became almost impossible for people to say that possibly it was not such a bad thing, not in a Tory sense, but uh, just discuss the issue. The discussion became impossible. <laughs> Not so much in the north or even in Scotland, but largely in metropolitan London, not to discuss it. So when you raise the point with people, look, we may not agree with it, but, you know, a majority of the country, over 17 million people have voted for it. Can't just, all of them can't just be written off as racists or Tory lovers. Most of them are not, it, it turns out. Some are. And so you can't just ignore a decision made via a referendum simply because uh, you don't agree with it. And then from this discussions move on to democracy. And often you heard democracy power, what's that? You know, you know, would you be in favor of people voted for X and Y? I mean, it's quite, quite interesting uh, to me. The sort of, it was just skin deep, this attachment, you know write them off. Well, I mean, even the fact that there was a referendum, I mean, if we, if we want to talk about the present, I mean, you know, the, the, the absence of dem democratic control on the European level is, you know, part of the problem here, I think. If the EU was more accountable, uh, you might not have to have referendums and then overturn the referendums, which has happened not just in Britain, it should be remembered, but at the time the European Constitution was uh, proposed. Uh, 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 so, 
you know, Brexit should be in a long line of uh, a long line of, uh, 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 of votes that uh, liberals have been unhappy with. Well, the European like. Union, till now, and we'll see what happens, has not permitted any referendum result hostile to it to be put into practice. Mm. In Greece, they subverted the government after the Maastricht referendums on the constitution when the French and the Dutch voted against it. They pushed through uh, some stupid enabling act to make these all redundant and got the uh, treaty through uh, with its constitution. And I'll tell you something. I remember being in France during that debate on, on the constitution. Every single French town and village, Paris downwards in terms of population, had huge debates and discussions. That wretched constitution had been read by more people in France than the entire political class in Europe, who admitted, no, we haven't read it. In France, they had read it. And because of the, at the heart of this constitution was a neoliberal project, which some are trying to get rid of now in different ways, um, most people in France and Holland turned it down, ignored completely. So this is a tradition, actually. Right. And I would say, so to, to set that in a longer trajectory, because I imagine we'll be talking more about Brexit and its aftershocks uh, uh, when we get to questions, or, or maybe maybe sooner than that. But to set it in a longer trajectory, you're absolutely right that the notion that we live in liberal democracies and that those words are either in, you know indelibly connected or the same is wrong. And you know. Uh, so, so you know, it's a, a vestige of the Cold War to think in those terms. And I think now one way of conceiving of the crisis of liberalism, if there is indeed a crisis that we're living through, is the way that those terms are coming apart. The way that economic liberalism, the right to send your money wherever you want, if you're a capitalist abroad or to invest or not to invest, the absolute right of private property to be able to inherit and pass on your wealth to your uh, heirs, all of those economic rights are at odds uh, with uh, uh, democratic rights to political self-determination and, and um, of, of, of nation states or peoples. So, um, and that is in a long trajectory. So just to put it in the context of The Economist and its early history, uh, one of the pleasures of writing the book was rereading Walter Badgett. And um, I don't know how many of you uh, have to read Walter Badgett in school. My, my sense in doing the research for this book is that the English Constitution is one of these things that you just have to read or talk about when discussing once upon the, the British state. No? Okay. Well, uh, I'm an American, as you can tell. So this, to me, was... I, I took uh, perverse pleasure in finding out just, you know, this document that is discussed, discussed by everyone from, you know, Dicey in the 19th century to, um, you know, Crossman in the 20th century uh, as a reference for understanding how your government works, if it does the division between the dignified and the efficient parts of the Constitution. Um, it's a bit like an inverted version of Marx's notion that the bourgeois states of the 19th century were led by the executive committees of the bourgeoisie. Walter Badgett says, yes, indeed, they are led by the executive <laughs> committees of the bourgeoisie, and that's very good, because there are only about 10,000 educated, propertied men in Britain who deserve the right to vote, and everyone else is about as intelligent and curious as they were 10,000, I'm sorry, 2,000 years ago. Uh, and if you doubt me, go into your kitchen and ask your footman and ask your, 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 your maid and ask your chef the, the plainest, most obvious question about current affairs. 
and see what they come up with, and you'll you'll see that I'm right. Um, so just the, he calls the notion that working men should have a right to vote. He calls the the potential representatives that they he calls them the members for the public houses. You know, this is this is his idea of the working class, and the just complete outright unapologetic snobbery of it is refreshing. Uh, 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 it's straightforward. Um, it's also a little breathtaking because uh, uh, you know it is a it is a serious attempt and not a, not a totally wrong attempt to try and understand the the way that government works and the relationship between parliament and the crown uh, and and all all the rest of it. But just as an example, concretely, of the kind of terror that Walter Badgett had of the Second Reform Act, right? Which which you know doesn't extend the suffrage that widely. There's no there's no notion in that act of a of, of, of the right to vote as a, as a, as a natural right. It's, it's still a condition of property. And, and you mentioned the long, you know, tradition, the, the, you know, the way in which the vote kind of gradually becomes extended. And in a certain version of liberalism, that is claimed as a kind of, almost teleologically. Yes, yes, of course, gradually, liberals allowed the working class to vote. They didn't have much say in the matter. But but this is really a you know the wrong way of talking of talking about it. And up to 1914, Britain was as democratic as the Austro-Hungarian Empire in terms of how many people were allowed to vote. So I think we you're totally right. We need to to look at the history of liberalism and its relationship to democracy differently. I think if we do, we'll see that this, these current issues are not are not so unprecedented or hard to understand. Uh, Alexander, coming to just to talk about The Economist, uh, as described in your book, actually, rather judiciously, contrary to this silly review, um, you describe sort of strange contradictions in the paper. I mean, for instance, who would have guessed? I certainly didn't know that till I read your book, that The Economist had opposed the First World War. Mm. Was, and this, of course, created a big debate, and lots of people were horrified, including the senior figures within the economists. But how could this have happened? Right. That's, that's a great question. Francis Hurst was the editor of The Economist uh, in 1914. Uh, he came in almost at the same time as the new liberals triumphed in the landslide election mm-hmm. of 1906. Yeah. Uh, and... He, he, was a, he was a very interesting fellow, full of contradictions. He took an extremely principled stand against the First World War, for which he was fired in 1916, so it doesn't have a totally happy ending. Uh, um, uh, he was friends uh, with Bertrand Russell, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, over, during the course of that, of that experience of opposing the war. Um, at the same time, he was passionately, uh, one might say hysterically, opposed to the extension of the suffrage to women. Oh. And uh, his marriage actually fell apart because, because his, of that. Because of that, his, his wife took up with the, the the suffragettes, and they had a row. And John Simon, the Attorney General, this is how you know this is how it works when you're an editor of the Economist. You have the Attorney General intercede on your behalf when your when your spouse leaves leaves home, uh, uh, has to intercede. And um, so, I, it was one of my favorite chapters to write. And, and to answer your question about how that that's even possible. One of the things I discovered in writing the early history of The Economist is that, you know, the triumphant story of the Anti-Corn Law League uh, 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 and its, and it's, uh, it's you know, the, the, the abolition of the Corn Laws in 1846, um, 
is attributed to Richard Cobden and John Bright. I'm sure you, you all have posters of these people on your walls at home. These are the great founders of, your, of, your, uh, of, of the liberal state. Um, anyway, they uh, uh, not only believed in free trade in, a sen- in an economic sense, but they, 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 they saw it as the path to peace. They, they saw free trade in a, in a utopian sense as, as sort of not, it's not just about commerce, but it's about what commerce does, how it interlinks us, and maybe you're familiar with a version of that story. Now, James Wilson, uh, who, who became friendly with Cobden and, and an ally of the Anti-Corn Law League and kind of furnished them with a set of arguments that helped them win, uh, uh, subscribes to that. And there's an early economist, uh, 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 an early edition of The Economist that argues that the entire diplomatic corps should be dismissed. All of these aristocrats who are constantly getting angry with each other out of a, an affair of honor, you know, and, and uh, you know, getting us into wars and scrapes of one kind or another, they should be dismissed and replaced with merchants. You know, merchants are going to, they're not, they're not going, they want to make money, they're not going to make war. To make war. <clears throat> At any rate, around the time of the Crimean War, Wilson's in government, right? He, 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 in 1847, he, he comes into government. Almost immediately, he can, obtains a cabinet post. And he sings the, the tune of the government in the Crimean War. And there's a furious falling out between Cobden and, and Wilson. And from that moment forward, The Economist actually reverses that earlier position about the relationship between commerce and, and peace or free trade and peace. And it actually takes the line that from now on, in order to, you're going to have to force people to trade freely to adapt the line from Rousseau, you know? You're, you, you might have to go to war with China over opium. You might have to go to war with Russia because it's uh, sort of run, run riot and uh, uh, respects no norms of West. It should sound familiar to us, you know, outside of our, the Western community of values. And so this is a very long-winded way of answering your question about Francis Hurst, but my point is that Francis Hurst is loyal to a sort of Cobdenite right, vision okay. of peace and free trade. And, and so, um, although he's a capitalist to his bones, to borrow another person's expression, uh, he believes that that requires the financial hegemony of the city of London, the place of Britain in the world economy uh, and polity requires peace. And so he's adamant that the war should be opposed. Britain should not enter the war. It's fine for the European powers to cut each other's throats over this assassination in Sarajevo, but Britain should stay out of it. It's, it goes against its traditions. And so I think that that is just the long way of saying that there's a kind of Cobdenite strand to this liberal story that the economist consistently from 1854 onwards is, is against. And that's why it's weird that Hearst is editor. Well, do, I mean, we can't obviously go through every uh, section of your book, um, Alexander, but um, what is very interesting if we come to the latest period, you know, the post, so-called post-Cold War period, where you thought the economist and people who support it and read it, i.e. heads of states and civil servants, would have been become a bit more relaxed since the big enemy that was communism had gone mm. in, most, <clears throat> in virtually every shape or form uh, with the implosion of Gorbachev's Russia. The Chinese had taken the capitalist road. 
after a long debate inside the uh, 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 party and were proceeding along those lines. Um, and so they should have felt quite calm and, you know, pushed through more reforms of the system. But in fact, exactly the opposite thing happened. That once they, they found that there were leaders in Russia who didn't, who weren't going to do their bidding, I mean, and in China who weren't going to support them blindly, i.e. when Russia and China asserted their sovereignty, even in a limited way, they suddenly began to be targeted hmm. and became the new enemies with, with the complete backing of the economist. And all this, of course, coincided with the Wall Street crash of 2008 which the economists certainly hadn't predicted, you know. Uh, and how that crash would be dealt with, I mean, there were two methods within capitalism. One was to let some of the worst banks go to the wall and revive the economy both with stimulus um, and with fewer banks, as the Japanese did, uh, to, their, to their credit. An example that wasn't much talked about or lauded, or to do something which the West did, which was to spend trillions on bailing out the banks. So the whole argument of the state mustn't intervene. It's no longer permitted for the state to intervene. The private sector must enter all the hallowed domains of social provision, which we had thought would never happen again. That's all fine. But the minute capitalism in a crisis, the state is forced to intervene and spend trillions. And the result of that have been oppositions of one sort or the other from the right and the left. We're in Britain now, where the main opposition to this has come from the left with the political insurrection by the youth transforming the Labour Party. And you have announced today a social democratic program by Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which challenges neoliberalism frontally. I mean, whether you agree with Corbyn or not is a separate point. I do, but I mean, many people may not. Uh, but um, it's uh, effectively a confrontation that he's taken on. And added to this, we have a very curious situation in Britain today that neither of the two big parties reflect the real desires and hopes of the British ruling class. I mean, Boris, because of his sort of slightly crazed uh, positions, and they're very nervous about him, though they will probably accept him and bring him under, and Corbyn for obvious reasons. This I can't recall happening before to, 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 to this extent. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things is that in 2008, I'm sure you remember there were obituaries to the capitalist system almost immediately. Why Marx was right. Marx is one. It's the end. Neoliberalism is over. Austerity is, well, austerity just, is about to just begin. But, um, you know, in fact, it's taken 10 years for the political manifestations of that <coughs> founding act, which was the sort of bailing out of, of international finance with no comparable attempt to help ordinary people, let alone the rest of the economy, um, to catch up with that. And The Economist, you know, is very upfront at the time in 2007-8 in saying we must save the system, the banks must be saved uppermost. That is the heart, beating heart of the, econo- the economy. And from their perspective, 
at least I argue, it always has been. Finance has been. The money market has always been the animating force of capitalism, not industrial capitalism or some other kind of capitalism. So, um, you know, of course, what's that, what that has meant, the, the, the extraordinary measures of low interest rates and quantitative easing, um, have only accelerated inequality, um, have only accelerated the rise of, of, of a political rebellion, <coughs> whether from the right or the left, against the hypocrisies of this, uh, of this, of, of this kind of medicine that's been meted out to some um, while others get, you know, a spoonful of sugar, as it were. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that um, the, the question of whether liberalism is in crisis or not is the kind of central, central, central one, in a way, maybe for the, 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 the final part of my book. And, you know, in one sense, it clearly is in crisis. Mm. Its ability to, to, to generate consent of any positive kind is clearly waning. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, but on the other hand, uh, what's on offer from the political parties in Britain, with the exception, I think, a very hopeful, positive exception of, of Corbyn's Labour Party, uh, you know, the Liberal Democrats are offering permanent austerity. They, they seem to have learned nothing from, they, they're going, they pledge to have a budget surplus, uh, uh, every year. And the, and the Conservatives were arguing about whether they're going to build six hospitals or merely renovate six hospitals, whereas Labour has actually proposed to, rebalance the economy between nationalized or, or private and public or, or, or uh, between north and south. I mean, to really try and address some of the very long-term uh, consequences of uneven and combined development within Britain and, and the world economy. Well, and the liberals are not just sort of presenting themselves as the defenders of orthodox neoliberalism, but also as the most warmongering. I mean, this crazed stuff from uh, Joe Swinson uh, about would you press the nuclear button? Yes, I would. I mean, it's sort of who feels she should change her name to Joe Strangelove. It's just crazed stuff. And it's abstract because no British politician, whatever party he or she belongs to, can press it. This is a decision taken by by Washington. Exactly. So this whole notion that somehow Britain is a bit independent because it has these, uh, you know, Polaris missiles which have been to be renewed every few years and money poured into the American arms industry. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's crazy, this, this notion of independence. Brexit or Remain, it doesn't affect it. There is no way the United, uh, British Prime Minister can go to war, really, non-nuclear or leave alone nuclear without getting the approval of the United States. So there's a sort of air of unreality about it. And one reason Corbyn is loathed so much is because he is hostile to wars and the numerous interventions that have taken place. Right. And I would say, actually, that is the I agree with you. And I think that's that's the one domain in which liberalism continues to go unquestioned in many respects. So economically, I think there's more and more people who sense that this economy doesn't work, that inequality has to be tackled. There are political movements now in the U.S. and in, and in Britain that want to attack that problem from the left. But it, it's very rare that one encounters someone who questions the wisdom of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or of uh, uh, the wisdom of, 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 of the use of embargoes, for example, uh, against, against uh, uh, recalcitrant states, whether in Venezuela or, 
or, or, or, or in North Korea that this is a wise or humane act. And I think that, I think that my sense is that one of the reasons that Corbyn, who in, in 2017 put forward a, a pretty, what we would have considered, you know, a few decades ago, a pretty standard social democratic vision, you know, nothing actually no. create, nothing too wild, uh, 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 was so vilified and has continued to be vilified because he has consistently questioned the wisdom of that kind of Western uh, 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 form of, of, of interventionism and, and warfare. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Okay, I think we better, it's uh, time for questions. So, uh, whoever wants to ask, the mic microphone is there. Please uh, try and keep it brief so we can have as many as possible. Anyone? Yeah, here at the back there. Uh, I had a question about the post-crisis period in particular. Um, in their reporting, is there any sign of sort of reflection or the fact that they might need to make some concessions to like retain their credibility rather than sort of holding on to the idea that um, we need to sort of uh, continue this consensus? You mean in the... Oh, sorry, should we answer? Should we have multiple questions and then... No, no, answer just answer. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, do you mean in the post-war period, post-1945? No, no, sorry, a post-crisis. Oh, post-crisis. Uh, I would say that the current editor, Zanny Minton Beddoes, has attempted to, to, to propose some solutions to, you know, the, the rise in income inequality. Uh, and she wrote a special report before she became editor about how one might do that and models in Scandinavia for dealing with inequality. Um, but they, they tend to be sort of softer versions of neoliberalism that, that to my mind would do very little to alter the trajectory of rising income inequality. And the economist has had a tendency to sort of imply that the crisis could be solved by some version of pitting the young against the old or of this reframing of, of the crisis of capitalism as, 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 as uh, you know, between those who favor an open society and a closed society. And to me, those are, those are obfuscations. When it comes to the international order, the international Western order, as it were, I see very little reflection at all. Uh, uh, economically, yes, but but in terms of that, in terms of that kind of what to do about Syria, what to do about Libya, w- w- whether or not Iran should be punished for you know uh, actually abiding by the uh, 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 um, you know the the deal they signed with Obama, let alone whether they should actually be allowed to to pursue nu- nuclear weapons if they want. Those sorts of questions, I think that there's it's been quite reluctant to push very far against the U.S. Even as there's a lot of hand wringing about. Trump's insults against NATO, very little, to my mind, has changed. And, and we see that above all, sorry, with respect to Russia. Um, so yes, some changes, some reflection, but, but sort of a very limited kind. I mean, they surprised us this week by backing the coup in Bolivia. Exactly. They, well, they, they came out and said, you know, this is not a coup. It's not a coup at all. Right? Just a regime change. <laughs> right, just a, just a little... A, a modest coup. <laughs> 
So, but that, but that, that you know, of course, is very consistent. And um, you know, Allende, uh, uh, part of the, one of the better stories in the book. Obviously, it's filled with great stories that you'll you'll all love. But uh, uh, is, is about the the way the Economist was via uh, one of the best characters in the book, and the movie rights are available if anyone wants them. Uh, uh, Moss, uh, Robert Moss, who plays an active role in undermining Allende's regime, publishes a book called Allende's Marxist Experiment, which is, which is designed to sort of delegitimize the regime in, in the West, um, but comes out too late. The coup's already happened. So the Chilean embassy buys it, buys 10,000 copies of it in order to distribute to various, uh, you know, its embassies all around the world to justify the coup once it's happened. Anyway. So no, but you've left out the best bit. Oh, yeah. which is that when the coup happens and Allende is is killed, uh, this uh, grotesque figure Robert Moss runs through the corridors of the Economist, shouting, "Hooray! My enemy is dead!" I mean, it really is grotesque. <laughs> yeah, Moss is. Uh, that's not all he does. So no, there's more adventures no, yeah. in Mosslandia. Today he's a dream shaman in upstate New York after being one of the fiercest cold warriors in the world. And he leaves The Economist in 1980 to write erotic spy fiction, uh, uh, which one is, you know, it's, 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 I've read every single one of those spy thrillers. Unfortunately, um, they involved death beams. Uh, he had to change a novel title because of the Death Star obviously had been patented by Lucas Films and, uh, Reagan invites him to the White House for a book launch. So actually, the pe- these people are taken very seriously, despite being borderline insane, and, uh, or, or insane, actually. And uh, when the Cold War ends, he has a nervous breakdown, and, uh, and then, then the, the, shaman, the, shaman, uh, you know, the shaman activities begin. But uh, 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 yeah. Good. OK. Uh, yeah, here. Hi. Um, I was just wondering um, if you could tell us a bit about could the, you speak into the mic? About the uh, editorial position um, on independence movements from, from Britain, um, like starting with Ireland in 1916. Um, did they have like a kind of consistent line? Was there, was there differences? Just whatever you kind of uh, know about that. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the Economist uh, resists uh, these movements for national independence uh, uh, that begin uh, uh, in Ireland and, 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 and uh, spread all throughout the world in the aftermath of the First World War. Um, and uh, I'm tr- I mean, I, I, we can cite numerous examples, uh, but uh, 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 Ireland is a good one. Uh, there's Egypt. Um, I mean, it, the story gets more interesting around the time of decolonization because many people I spoke to at The Economist told me that, you know, after 1945, The Economist pretty much accepts that the, you know, the West has had its day and uh, 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 The Economist supports decolonization, a kind of orderly end to the British Empire. But really, when you look at the, the actual articles that are published uh, after 1945, it's not, it's not true. Um, the Economist uh, actively tries to thwart uh, 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 movements for colonial independence um, in Africa, uh, in East Asia, Malaya, Kenya, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 in Aden, um, uh, and, and elsewhere. And, and, and you know, they, they are more or less involved in certain instances. In Indonesia, they condone the uh, 1965 slaughter of 500,000 suspected communists and thereafter are big enthusiasts for the uh, regime uh, all the way up until the, the very end um, as, as kind of necessary for economic development. Um, so, I mean, really that's actually one of the central... 
Your question, in a way, is hard to answer because there's so many um, examples. That's really one of the folk, one of the themes of the book: is what does the economist do when colonial peoples begin to demand independence? What sorts of ingenious solutions do they come up with when when that happens? And actually, talking about Indonesia, uh, they have an obituary in today's Economist or this week's Economist, which I just read before coming here, of one of the leading killers and mass murderers who went round garroting. He was a specialist in garroting communists, and they've got a critical obituary of him, reading which and reading of the uh, massacres that were carried out. They are very judicious about how they write it, saying these were appalling things. But is there a whisper of the line their own newspaper took? Actually, supporting these massacres is necessary. No, and this you find not just in the Economist, but lots of media people who were different magazines and newspapers who took up positions which today they would be ashamed of. Uh, and whose positions keep changing, much more so than the Economist, which has a sort of certain grim consistency. Uh, but they change, and they never actually say, <coughs> "Sorry, we were completely wrong when we did this, when we backed the Iraq War, before that, when we backed the Vietnam War." I mean, you know, it, it's it's a strange thing. And then the liberals in the United States, in the New York Times, the Democrats get very worked up when Trump comes out with a, one of his tweets, which actually is sane and which is totally accurate, in which he says the reason I want to pull out from Syria is because I promised to do so, and we've been in the Middle East too long. Lots of our soldiers have been killed and are traumatized as a result. And we've killed millions of people in that region. Shock horror! This is the American president saying it. You know, not Jeremy Corbyn. And that is what they can't take because the big thing here is that the people who we—I don't say we, but I mean—kill—that's fine. That doesn't count as a crime. It's people our enemies kill that counts as crimes, and that necessitating humanitarian interventions. This has been a regular theme in it. So you know, uh, Milosevic is tried as a war criminal for a massacre, accused of it. Tony Blair isn't tried as a war criminal for literally participating in an action and justifying it on the basis of lies. Uh, which led to the deaths of millions, you know, at least a million, if not more. So these double standards are part and parcel of the sort of this particular liberal ethos. Sorry, yeah. So, um, given that there are lots of latent political ideas still in force, and um, notwithstanding nuclear fallout, what would be the sequel to your book, Alex? <laughs> I'm still recovering. I've, uh, you know, I've been writing this book for about seven or eight years, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have to get my bearings before I embark on another another project. I think, though, it will not be another history of a newspaper or magazine. <laughs> Especially, you know, this is a weekly The Economist. It's come out every week for 176 <laughs> years. So, the New York Times can rest easy, even though I have some complaints against them, I, I, I'm, not sure I can, I'm not sure I can quite handle that. So I, I'll, I'll get back to you on that, but, well, but I think newspapers are out. 
Don't. I mean, I wouldn't be that uh, diffident, uh, Alexander. You could have a book called Left Liberalism in Crisis, The World According to the LRB. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, at the back there. I wanted to ask Alex. Uh, uh, Could you you've speak looked into at the this mic, long, please? You've looked at this long period of 140 years, and it is for a, any publication to survive so long is a bit of a feat. Uh, and in the most recent period, especially because of uh, the impact of the digital world and um, the, the most print media going to the wall. So it's one of a, a real handful, or even less than a handful, of publications uh, that are still recognisably um, connected to their past. And I wondered, were there any times when The Economist almost disappeared? And what has actually happened to it in just the last few years, where it's uh, uh, it, it sold its big building uh, and... Um, uh, sort of seemed to make a lot of money. Has it been financialized itself a little bit? Because it's in cahoots now with the Financial Times. And uh, uh, is it really as independent as it used to be? And my, uh, might it? My, what 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 sort of future can you predict for it? So uh, it's true. It's quite a feat for the Economist to have not only survived but thrived for 176 years. And my criticisms of it aren't designed to to un- to, to you know in any way uh, undermine that. Um, you know the has the the Economist has also for most of those years been profitable, which is another rare feat in journalism. After the first few years, when it seems that Richard Cobden had to pay to bail it out which is one of the reasons he was so angry with James Wilson after he turned against him, uh, The Economist has been profitable. And even with the collapse in advertising revenue, which has completely decimated print journalism, uh, The Economist has continued to, to be able to, to post profits, um, uh, even if they've declined somewhat over the last uh, uh, few years, um, in part because it can charge so much for its subscriptions and because it has such well-off uh, well-to-do subscribers, and, and because it does provide an actual service, which is to tell people, even if in a sort of through an ideological veil, about what's happening in the world. It has many, many foreign bureaus, and you can really find out about what's happening in, in, in places that simply aren't covered in most in most newspapers because there are so many foreign bureaus, and The Economist does actually d- d- do something which is, 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 is uh, important. So um, that's, that's, I guess, part of my answer. During the Second World War, because of paper shortages, The Economist shrinks to a uh, you know, very, very, very small uh, uh, um, uh, little little, uh, little document, um, but it never stops publishing. Um, so that that goes to 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 that side of it. When the Economist was yes, the Economist has actually undergone one of the first changes in in ownership, or the, the first change in ownership since the 1920s. Um, uh, in the 1920s, Walter Layton, who was the editor then, uh, quite an interesting man. Uh, 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 played, played an important role in interwar politics. Uh, 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 he went to, to buy it with the help of a bunch of city of London grandees. It's not, it's, not, it's not that it's just become financialized now. The city of London has always been an important um, sort of funder, whole, shareholder in The Economist, or at least since the 1920s. And he fights for control of the paper with a guy named Brendan Bracken, who is a larger-than-life figure uh, that uh, even Waugh 
uh, immortalizes as Rex Matram in Brideshead Revisited, who kind of is a mythoman and makes stuff up about himself. Anyway, that's how the Financial Times becomes a co-owner of The Economist, or Pearson, rather, becomes a co-owner of, of, both, of both entities. Uh, so anyway, recently, The Economist uh, uh, bought, bought itself out, uh, so to speak. Existing shareholders uh, bought the, the paper in part by selling off the building when the uh, Financial uh, Times went up for sale by Pearson. Nikkei bought the Financial Times, and The Economist, in part by selling that great building. The Economist actually had an amazing building, a, a brutalist uh, uh, three brutalist towers in St. James that the Smithsons uh, built, a uh, kind of, uh, you know, sort of a, quite a modernist and uh, uh, even left-wing enterprise in the, in the uh, uh, post-war period. Anyway, so the Agnelli family, from the Rothschilds to the Agnellis now, the Agnellis are, are, are really big shareholders in the, in the Economist. And uh, I mean, I could talk more about that, but maybe, you know, that's, that's enough about, you know, that. Okay, uh- one last question. No, sorry. Uh, the, <coughs> there at the back. Go. Then, you, then we'll have you, but be quick. These are the last two questions. I'll be quick. Um, I just had a, in, in the review today, I was struck by the way that the, the reviewer was keen to insist the Economist is, contains loads of facts as opposed to <laughs> ideas. Um, and I just was wondering to what degree the presentation of the Economist or the presentation of liberalism as unideological is kind of integral to the ide- to the ideology in some sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, that's I don't I, I, I'm not going to elaborate too much because you're you're absolutely right. And what was that? That was a revealing comment in the in, in the paper. There are, there are ideas on the one hand in which we tell you the way the world should be, and the rest is just the presentation of of facts, as though the Economist's recommendation for what the central bank of Zimbabwe should do is not ideological in the back of the paper, of course it is, but that doesn't mean it's, you know, doesn't mean we should dismiss it out of hand. It simply means we need to read it against the grain and try and, you know, Daniel Singer, who was a, a, a comrade, uh, uh, was the, Paris, as, as Tarek might say, uh, was the Paris correspondent for a long time uh, uh, for The Economist. Isaac Deutscher, an, another Marxist. Isaac Deutscher wrote in the 40s and 50s. And, right. You know. And, and he, he said, anyway, Singer said before he died that you know, one of the things about The Economist that was great is if you were on the left, you could go to read it to find out what the ruling class thought uh, about the world, and they would tell you quite frankly. And, uh, for, you know, for, he found that very uh, useful. So. Last question here. I, I think one of the, the, the recent puzzles is what happened to the British Labour Party after the 2008 crash. Because I've been at Fabian Society meetings, supposed to be the Labour Party think tank, where senior members of the Labour Party admit that it was a mistake to accept the conservative propaganda that the crash in this country was caused by Labour's overspending. But they can't explain why they did it. They say, well, we were wrong to do that, but there's no explanation of why they went on to the back foot and bought into this explanation rather than going on insisting that this was a global financial crisis. And I wonder if you have any insight, because it was almost as if a liberal democratic consensus had to be maintained at the price of turning down an open goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe Tarek has something to say about that. Well, too. Uh, you know, the thing is this. I mean, Labour could have said, uh, this is a banker's crisis brought about by the deregulated system 
and what was done to banks in the 90s and the early years of this century. And this is a price now we are paying for that and come up with some tough measures, tough even as tough as the Japanese. They didn't do it. And the reason they didn't do it is because both Blair and Brown had effectively supported Thatcher's and Thatcherism and the whole deregulation of the... So the symbiosis between bankers and the politi- and the politicians was very, very strong. And they were part and parcel of it. I mean, this nonsense about Gordon Brown having saved the world and all that, just sort of complete. Now, even Obama, actually, was slightly better than the new labor leaders here by releasing some money as stimulus to prevent factories from closing down, though in terms of Wall Street, he was as craven, uh, much to the surprise of the Wall Street bankers who went to see Obama. And one of them wrote afterwards, we were expecting at the very least to be given a severe telling off, if not being hit on the hands with rulers, but he just welcomed us and said, now, how can we all get together and sort it out? They were prepared for tough punishment. They didn't get it. And it's virtually the same same business here. And I think if you look at the pre-Corbyn party, even Edward Miliband, who couldn't win, but they backed the Tory Cameron's measures, austerity measures, voted for them. That was the position of the Parliamentary Labour Party. So this change, none of us were expecting it to happen. But it happened because they opened up the party, hoping that lots of right-wing people would come in and completely marginalize the trades unions. And the exact opposite happened. And the half a million who entered the party actually voted Corbyn. That's what gives him his enormous sense of confidence. It's not the Parliamentary Labour Party. It's the ordinary members of the Labour Party. So we shall see uh, what happens. Thanks very much. And I think it's time to uh, buy uh, young (laughs) Alex's book. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.